Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 151. Have you ever installed a Python package without knowing anything about it? What best practices should you employ to ensure the quality of your next package installation? Christopher Trudeau is back this week, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We also have Python Software Foundation Executive Director Deb Nicholson to share details about PyCon US 2023. We cover a recent RealPython tutorial by Philip Exeni titled, How to Evaluate the Quality of Python Packages. The piece provides a tool set to research the traits, history, software license, and current condition of external Python packages. We also discuss personal techniques before selecting a package for our Python projects. We share several other articles and projects from the Python community, including how virtual environments are structured, the overhead of Python async I.O. tasks, how to document Python projects with Sphinx and read the docs, a project for creating argparse boilerplate, and how to generate realistic fake numbers using Benford's law. Deb Nicholson is also here to talk about the 20th anniversary of PyCon US hosted in Salt Lake City. We dig into the details of the upcoming conference, including keynote speakers, tutorials, scheduled talks, and improving the hybrid online experience. Courier is a developer platform for notifications, providing powerful API primitives for building notifications that perfectly fit your app UX. Get started for free at courier.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. Hey there. So we're bypassing some news this week. Don't really have a whole lot of news for you. But we do have a good set of tutorials, articles, and a couple projects. And then we have a nice conversation with Deb Nicholson about PyCon US 2023. So I'm starting this week. I've got a real Python tutorial. This one's from Philip Exeni. This one is about how to evaluate the quality of Python packages. And I thought, okay, well, this is maybe just kind of a cursory thing, but there's actually a lot of detail, as usual as you dig into it. And a couple of things I was not familiar with as far as uh, as tools. And I was able to use it, kind of looking at a few different packages I've scratched my head about and wondered about in the past. It has a flow chart, which you can download it as you're kind of going through it that can help you kind of in the decision-making process. If you're new to Python, you may not have really practiced navigating through all these tools and people might've just said, oh, you need this package, you need that package. As opposed to, you know, as you kind of get a little more advanced, you might occasionally scratch your head and say, maybe somebody's already done this work <laughs> and I could uh, build on top of them and, and take advantage of some of their work and, and incorporate it in there and uh, see what's out there already in existing packages. And so how can you decide what's good, what's maybe kind of shady? And this can give you a bunch of tools to help with that research. I think I did this more with JavaScript where I was going through like tutorials and just sort of grabbing whatever they told me to grab, which was often a lot, but that's not uncommon for tutorials in, in our world too. Very often they are usually bigger libraries that they're working with, but occasionally you'll hear somebody, oh yeah, I use this for doing something in audio. And you're kind of wondering, what is this package and what's, what's inside of it? And you've probably heard us, Christopher and myself, talk about many, many news stories about now, that could be a potentially disastrous decision. There could be also the problem of making sure you got the name right, uh, typo squatting and things like that. Or potentially you, you find something and it ends up not doing what you thought it would do. So he gives you four major steps that you can take in your process of evaluating a new package before installing it. The first one is to look it up in the resources from the Python Packaging Authority and going to PyPI itself. And as you land on the page, it does have a search bar. 
And that allows you sort of an ordering system. And the two that are interesting is one called relevance. So, you know, if you've named something or maybe you did make a typo, potentially things that are in that vein would pop up as far as relevance. And then a way to order the things by the last time the thing was updated. You could see the most recently updated packages at the top if you want. And then on the left side, there's sort of classifiers that are filters for making sure under programming language, not only the language itself, but versions. So you can say, oh, I want to make sure this will work with the version of Python I'm using, which is currently 3.10 or 3.11 or what have you. And you can kind of make sure of that. And it even has implementations for things like MicroPython or Jython or things like that inside there. And there's also other potential languages that maybe it's using Rust or C or something like that under the hood. You can also look at the license. You can look at the development status, which is something that he focuses on a little bit. And under that, you can see if it's, is this currently, what's the status? Is it under production stable or does it look like it's inactive or maybe it's just in the planning or an alpha stage? So a couple resources there right in PyPI. And then once you've clicked on the package and get to the actual sort of details page on it, there's quite a bit there. The project description giving you some of the main details. You can also see links usually to the GitHub repo there, depending on if they've shared that. And then along with that, it may have the GitHub statistics being tied in for you. And if the project has its own documentation or homepage, a link for that. You can see the maintainers and a variety of other kind of metadata that, that we were just talking about before. By looking at the documentation, you can pretty quickly tell what's happening with this package and you can see a little bit about the release history, uh, all the links to the project that we were just talking about. And then he mentions a tool that I haven't ever really used in this particular vein. I've usually used the one I was just mentioning, PyPI or going to the site's main pages or GitHub. But he mentions a, a site called libraries.io. This thing has a really great sort of stats page for the package that, again, if you were inside PyPI, you would have had to get to the data set that it has behind it because it has all the dependent packages, uh, when the thing was first released, uh, additional contributors, additional information that might not bubble up on that details page. And then the library's site is actually not a specific Python thing. Like I typed in the package that, that you've created called Purdy, and uh, a few other people have had an idea on that name. But the main one that came up on the top, I guess was last updated in 2019, is actually a JavaScript library. It's mostly about printing objects in real Purdy colors. He kind of gets into this whole separate thing as you click on it. It has what's called a source rank. From that, you can use it as a gauge to say how many stars does it have, how many watchers on GitHub, how many contributors, additional dependencies and things like that. And so they, they've kind of created their own ranking system for a package. It's a, a number of different metrics that can kind of help you get an idea and see if it's considered a high quality package through at least this site's metrics. The GitHub repository is always a great place to look. I, yeah, that's the most common one I look at today usually. Very often you can see some of the same detail information if the readme file is written well and is popping up and giving you details there. But you can also, again, see the stars, the watchers, how many forks, how active is it as far as issues and pull requests, or how inactive is it. <laughs> the last thing he really focuses on is the license, and then that's going to give you an idea of the permissions, additional conditions that the license might have in it, and then additional limitations, like uh, if you're going to be able to use this code in a way that you would need to make your package open source or what have you. He gives some advice near the very end about using a virtual environment when installing these types of packages, which we talk about a lot, and I'm going to talk about directly in a little bit here. And then some additional cautions at the end about typo squatting and some of the other things that have been happening in the news and why you may want to be more cautious as you're going through and installing packages. So it's a nice resource. Again, if you are new-ish to Python and haven't gone through the process of trying to find these resources yourself and evaluating packages, I think it's a good way to get started with all of that stuff. Are there any 
those types of tools that you use, Christopher, when you're looking at a new package? Mostly stuff that they cover in the uh, in the article, right? Like I'm always suspicious when there isn't a source code link on the PyPI page. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm okay. So where does this come from? And uh, the licensing is something people should uh, consider a lot, uh, depending on how they're using the code. Yeah. Thankfully, most Python stuff tends to be MIT, which is pretty liberal. So uh, that so that that makes things a little handier. Yeah. The other thing that I find is, particularly if I'm experimenting with something, you know, put it in its own virtual environment. The other thing I do, uh, which is kind of related, is I will either put comments or use two different files to track what was what I installed versus what was installed by the dependencies. Okay. And one of the reasons I do that is because you can always wipe out your virtual environment. So if you're experimenting, say you install three or four different packages, you'll end up with all of their dependencies and then you'll have this virtual environment filled with stuff you might not need. And there's tools out there that will actually check your code and and clean all this up. But I find it far easier that if I'm just tracking, hey, these are the three packages I actually used, I just wipe the virtual environment and do a clean install off that requirements file. And then I know all I'm getting is exactly what I needed once I'm done experimenting. Okay. So you narrowed your requirements file down to just those elements. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's plenty of tools out there that do better jobs of this. And, you know, this is sort of the poor person's equivalent of, you know, things like poetry and locking your dependencies and that kind of stuff. But uh, it's a quick and easy way to play around at least. Yeah, cool. What's your first article? Uh, So I've got something that's a short post from Will McCougan. Those not familiar, Will is one of the creators of Textual, which is a text-based application framework that uses CSS to do, you know, a 2E widget layout kind of thing. And all the available widgets in Textual are built on async. So this allows them to operate and animate independent of each other. And Will is trying to do some optimization on one of his programs that had like thousands of widgets and wondered how much of the overhead was actually coming from Async I.O. Mm, okay. And hence the name of the article, which is Overhead of Python Async I.O. Tasks. All right. So what Will did uh, to see the effect of using Async I.O. Tasks was create an experiment that comprised of a series of do-nothing tasks. And then in a tight loop, he essentially builds a bunch of them and times how long it takes to get them all going. So async IO is supposed to be more performant than threads. And the intent here was sort of to figure out what is the cost of a task and what is sort of the baseline of which he couldn't improve the framework, right? So how much of the uh, optimization was, you know, for his code and how much of it was the underlying cost of using async IO? Any guesses? No, um, I'm going to... Nah. I'm very intrigued to see. <laughs> Quarter of a million tasks per second. Wow. Yeah. So the numbers are a little based on the run, but he did but he did like 100,000, 200,000, up to a million tasks. And pretty consistently with each one of those runs, he ended up with around 250,000 per second. Your mileage may vary uh, depending on your setup. Uh, he was using a MacBook Pro M1, but you know your processor choice notwithstanding, this is a lot of tasks in very little time. Yeah. And uh, as he put it in the article, uh, I think the exact quote is, this is as close to free as you're going to get in the Python world. <laughs> yeah. So he essentially used this data to head off to find other places to optimize his code. So a uh, neat little scientific experiment. And uh, for anyone writing async IO code, it's uh, some useful little data. Yeah, that's not the bottleneck. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. It's not the, the bug is not in the compiler. Start by looking in your code. Yes, yeah. that's right. This is uh, the underlying library is not the problem. Yeah, I can think about it like because he has in the creation of a 2e, very often you're going to be doing lots of resizing and you don't want to see it kind of working through that going step one adjust the size of this yeah well and 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 he's also he's he's very active on twitter and uh he's very sort of public about how the library is being developed and and you'll you'll frequently see postings from him talking about you know trying to reduce the flash of things so that you know as you resize that it all looks clean and uh so he's trying to get a uh, a very smooth looking tool and so he's trying to make sure that uh, he's optimized the heck out of the underlying code yeah definitely Cool, and it's that much more important for a framework, right? Because everyone's yeah. using the building code on top of it. You don't want the framework being the thing that gets in the way, right? People point fingers at you. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
For web and mobile apps, delivering the right message in the right channel and at the right time to end users can be a massive challenge. Courier abstracts the complexity behind delivering a modern notification experience. With elegant API primitives for developers, UI components that follow the example of world-class apps, and beautifully designed no-code tools for product owners, notifications can now be a natural extension to the tech stack. Get started easily with their Python SDK and start sending notifications for free at Courier.com. All right, so my next one is from a familiar name, Brett Cannon, and from his personal blog, which I've mentioned multiple times. And really, it's a great resource. If you haven't gone to check it out, his blog is Tall Snarky Canadian, and it's snarky, S-N-A-R-K-Y dot C-A. I got to see Brett recently, actually last weekend in Vancouver. We were up at Pi Cascades, and it was really nice. He I'm planning to have him on to discuss a variety of the, his recent stuff on the blog. But if you're not familiar with him, he's a longtime core dev, and he's also a longtime member of the Python Steering Council. This particular one is titled How Virtual Environments Work. And it's not so much of like how to use virtual environments, but literally what happens when a virtual environment is created, what it does on your machine, and then how Python kind of uses that structure. And it was very interesting. I, I got a lot out of it kind of looking at what's going on. And then at the end, he has a reason why did I do this, <laughs> dig into all this and kind of look at it. And so it kind of starts with a bit of history and Python didn't have virtual environments at the start, kind of the background of which I know we've talked about and definitely long timers, people that have been in the Python world for a long time, you know, talk about scripts were the main thing that people were doing with Python and wasn't necessarily set up to do this thing with environments and as packages grew and kind of goes back to my other conversation and potentially looking at needs for having isolated environments for particular tasks or projects and, and so forth this really came in to its own and became such a very very useful tool installing globally used to mean that you didn't have any isolation between your projects so you got to watch out for that the idea that you've put everything inside your python installation and it leads to conflicts and versions as you work on different projects they have different needs so virtual environments came along and it gives you isolation and separation and hopefully only installing the things that you need or potentially packaging only the things that you need he has a little minor side note in it about the difference with conda environments and then he digs really deep into the actual structure and he talks about that you could do this manually. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be a lot of fun, but it's something that isn't that detailed. It talks about the actual like lines of code that would be required to do this and it's less than 100 lines. And I'm not going to get into the structure too much because it's something that looks a lot better in the article and you get a better idea of the things that are created in there, but if you've ever looked at what's inside the virtual environment folder that gets built in there, there's like a bin folder and an include folder and some configuration. He gets into then, as I mentioned, how Python uses the virtual environment and how they are sort of talking back and forth and how packages are getting installed there. So the main reason he was looking at doing this, he is also his main job is he works for Microsoft and he works on the Python experience for VS Code. He has been working on this Python extension for VS Code, and he had noticed this problem with versions of Ubuntu, Debian-based distros of it, that have removed VENV Ven, from the default Python install. And if someone is a Linux user, and they're also a beginner as far as using Python, they would install Python 3, and they wouldn't have it there and so they'd be like okay what the hell what's going on and so he's trying to help with that situation there is a way to do that manually he talks about it in the article include all of python 3 if you need it but he thought well maybe i could have a solution that could just solve it for them because there is a command inside of vs code python colon create environment it's a command that you can get to from the command palette so he created something called micro so M-I-C-R-O-V-E-N-V, -E no space, no dash, and have it as a 
sort of fallback mechanism. So by learning what truly is structured in there and writing the code out, he was able to kind of create his own. It's kind of amazing how small it is. It truly is micro. He talks about, you know, why don't people just use virtual env, which is an older style tool that people would have to actually add usually to their main Python install so they could create virtual environments. And the wheel for that was 8.7 megabytes and micro VEMV is 3.9 kilobytes. So it's uh, about 2000 times smaller <laughs> and a good chunk of what makes up virtual ends wheel is that it comes with pip and setup tools. So you can see there's a lot of additional stuff that's in there. In this particular case, he just needed the virtual environment stuff that was in there. And so I, it's a nice kind of nuts and bolts kind of thing. Learn about what's happening behind the scene. Also learn a little about some of these tools that are in there. You know, I liked it as a tour, but I, it's kind of surprising. He does a thing where he shows creating a virtual environment and then leaving pip out. And it's almost instantaneous. It's just creating folders and a symlink uh, and sort of these structural things. It, it's very almost instantaneous. I don't suggest doing it. Uh, I was having a conversation with Christopher before it. Um, it's a little clunky if you don't have pip uh, with it, but it is a way that you can just you know create literally the, the structure of the virtual environment. I think you can learn a lot by kind of digging into here and as far as virtual environments and what's being created on your machine and learn a little bit about the background. I, I'm thinking of including articles that we have more on the usage of virtual environments and getting started with them that RealPython's created in case that is more the questions that you might have as opposed to, you know, what the mechanically the environment's doing. All right. Did you used to use uh, other tools or have you always were you using virtual env before it became venv? I still use virtual env. I don't like venv. Okay. I've uh, I'm one of those weirdos who wants all of his uh, virtual environments in a standard location rather than underneath the project. Okay, as we've discussed before, it's people like me that make the packaging people pull their heads out because there's a, a I'm I'm an edge case. That's <laughs> really <laughs> what it comes down to. I'm one of those edge cases. So I still uh, any time I install uh, a brand new Python, the first thing I do is install the virtual env in it in the primary location, okay. so that I can create a. And then you're managing yeah. it all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, you're an edgy little edge yep. case. <laughs> and it's and it's a pain because it insists on calling the script virtual env. So I immediately go in and rename the script to the version because I've got five versions of Python on my machine. So I don't want anything called virtual env. It has to be virtual env dash three eleven so that I know which kind of virtual environment I'm creating. So uh, yep. which one are we pulling? Yeah. Interesting. It's funny, you're typing more and everything I see. Brett doing. He's always trying to type less. He has that Python launcher, so you can just I, type pi, py, and everything. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm typing has never been one of those things that to me that's not the bottleneck in what I'm doing. But yeah, uh, but I don't have any repetitive stress injuries, so uh, I, I understand that people go down that path. But yeah, can be. I also learned to type on a manual typewriter and played piano for many years, so I suspect my. Uh, my, my tendons are in better shape than some people. Well, uh, <laughs> well toned. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Yeah. All right. I can kill you with my pinky finger. But... All right. So what do you got next? Uh, I'm going to highlight a new real Python course, and it's uh, one of mine. It's called Documenting Python Projects with Sphinx and Read the Docs. Uh, if you've ever used any of my open source libraries, you've probably figured out that I'm a little obsessive about documentation. This comes from a early experience in my career. I did two co-op terms at the same place. And upon returning from four months of school, my boss went, hey, there's a bug in your code, go fix it. And if it weren't for the fact that my name was all over it, I would have sworn some other moron had written all of it. And for me, that was kind of when the light bulb went on. Uh, comments and docs may be about other people, but my future self is pretty much other people. Yeah. So since then, I've tried to be good to my future self and write some info so I don't have to go diving through my code to see how to use a library. And in Python, good choice for this is Sphinx. Uh, Sphinx is a library for writing documentation, and it uses restructured text, that's RST to its friends, which is a markdown-like markup language. 
thinks takes these RST text files and turns them into documents. So you can create PDFs, eBooks, or the most common case is HTML. Read the Docs, yeah, I'm not even done parsing the title yet, uh, is a free site that hosts documentation. And uh, it currently has over 80,000 projects on it and serves 55 million pages a month. So this is our hardcore open source uh, utility and very, very popular in the Python world. Uh, it integrates Sphinx very, very nicely and integrates with repos like GitHub as well. So you can hook it up to your repo and then when it sees a commit, it'll run Sphinx on your doc directory and then host the newly built HTML. So the course kind of covers all that and how to wire it all together. And it starts out by walking you through the different features of RST, so how the markup works and things like how to embed code and images and then shows you like the Sphinx command line tools, how to generate the skeleton of a project, build out different types of output. And then my favorite part of Sphinx, there's a plugin called Autodoc. What Autodoc does is read your Python comments and sucks them into your documentation. So if you've been a good little programmer and you've been writing comments on your functions and classes, Autodoc will produce a document for you. And as an aside, one of my favorite uses for this is in the testing world. So if your corporation insists on having a test document to go along with your test code, a great way of doing that is you put the comments in your test suite, and then you run Sphinx on it, it sucks it out, gives you a PDF. And then when they say, where's your testing document, you go, here it is. And you're not having to maintain two different things. So that's a that's a very, very useful technique for this kind of tool. Yeah, only updating one place, right? <laughs> exactly. Keep it all in one place, and then it, and then as you update your, you know, it stays in sync and all the rest of it, and and you're still satisfying your corporate overlords. So yeah. there's a tiny bit of extra work in this. Uh, you have to use the right kind of tags inside of your comments, but you can get some pretty decent results. And it doesn't, you know, once you get used to it, it's not that big a deal. And it even supports the ability to crosslink. So you, your comment, you can tag the name of, say, another class or a function, and then the resulting output will include links to the docs for those objects. So if you're talking about something and that, you know, this returns a, whatever, a course object, uh, you can click on the course object and go and see what a course object looks like. So that's really, really handy. So Sphinx also supports different themes. And one of the more popular ones is the read the doc theme, which produces HTML output that looks like the rest of the documentation on read the docs, which is nice. So you don't have to worry about the look and feel. It just takes care of all that for you. And then the course, after covering all the documentation stuff, goes on to give you a quick walkthrough of the read the docs site, how you hook your repo up, how to get all the auto generation stuff happening, how it all works. And because I get bored easily, there are various references to Firefly scattered throughout. So if you want to learn something about Sphinx and how to get better documentation out of your Python, this course is shiny. Yeah. See what I did there. <laughs> yep. I want to note that this uh, was a previous course, but was not as thorough and, you know, kind of comprehensive. I really enjoy what you've done with it. But also, it's not a written tutorial on the site. So this is like total, like, creation from Christopher here from somebody who uses these tools regularly. So that's good. That's a nice way of saying there's only one person to blame. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's dig into projects. I have a really quick one. It's called duck args, no space. And it's a code generator for arg parse boilerplate. So if you've used arg parse and you create CLIs or would like to create CLIs of different things you've created in Python and you don't want to do all the sort of repetitive typing that can be involved in there. This is a great little tool and it's from uh, Eric Nyquist and it's a GitHub project that you can kind of check out. And I was just impressed with after you've pip installed it, they have a, a nice example here of what you would type and it's almost like writing out the longest command ever as far as putting every positional argument that you'd like, you can use different flags in there to indicate that these are flags you want to include and then what would be, say, maybe default values or initial values that they'd have. Then as you go through all of those different flags, you then use that greater than symbol to pipe it into a particular script that you'd like. Uh, I like that it outputs this code for you where at the top of it, it actually shows you whatever the command was that you typed to do this, or at least all the argument parts of it. Then it imports arc parse and then defines 
the primary main function for you. And then inside that adds the, all the different arguments. So it's just a way to speed up the process of using arg parse to create a CLI out of what you have there. I dig it. I think it's a, a nice little add-on, uh, kind of a simple project. Yeah, I'm looking forward to trying this out. I, I it's uh, arc parse is one of those that I use a lot, and uh, it really is repetitive. I find there's a lot of copy and paste, yeah. so uh, this uh, seems like a, a handy little tool to get going. And yeah, Eric has a couple other kind of cool projects. Check out check out his GitHub. He's got some other interesting things. He mentions he's a software developer specializing in C for embedded systems, comma and Python. <laughs> and a lot of the projects he's sharing are, are definitely all Python ones. So he's got one about generating audio tones, with, which of course I'm going to check out. That's pure Python, so that'll be fun. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It just so happens to be the course Christopher was discussing earlier in the episode this week. It's titled Documenting Python Projects with Sphinx and Read the Docs. The course was written and presented by Christopher Trudeau. And as the course instructor, he takes you through how to write your documentation with Sphinx, how to structure and style your document with restructured text syntax, incorporate your code comments and doc strings into your documentation automatically using the PyDoc plugin, how to host your documentation on Read the Docs, and how updates to the project's GitHub page can also update your docs. The course includes additional resources for you to learn even more about documenting your project with Sphinx and read the docs, including a cheat sheet for using RST syntax for Sphinx. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. What's your project this week? I've got a two for this week. It's both a project and an article. Uh, they're both by Jason Ross. Okay. Uh, the article is entitled, Are Those Numbers Realistic or Fake? Try Using Benford's Law. So besides having a bit of a mouthful of a title, uh, the article is about a phenomenon that I find fascinating. So oddly enough, Benford's Law isn't named after its discoverer. Simon Newcomb noticed a pattern in his Logarithm Tables books it was the 1880s. Everybody had logarithm tables books. And the front part of the books were far more thumbed than the back parts. And it turns out that in the real world, a lot of the digits in a number's appearance in real world items aren't evenly spread. So the number one shows up as a first digit almost six times more frequently than the number nine in a lot of situations. Uh, Newcomb published a paper about this, and then it kind of just sat around. And then 50 years later, Frank Benford rediscovered the same thing and published his own paper. And so now it's Benford's Law. And this is the same reason the Americas aren't named after a Norwegian. Not everything adheres to Benford's Law, but enough things that this can be useful in the real world. It has been used to detect fraud in financial situations. For example, with expense claims, they tend to match Benford's Law. So if they don't and they're more evenly distributed, there's a chance your expenses are fraudulent. So that's the article. And it relates to a project which is called Randalize, spelled R-A-N-D-A-L-Y-Z-E. And it's a random number generator that fits a specific distribution. For now, the only distribution it supports is Benford, but he's structured it so that others can be added later. So you can use this little command line tool and it'll output in text or CSV or JSON. And it essentially lets you create random numbers, but random numbers that fit the Benford curve. So the next time you want to create fraudulent expense statements, no, wait, <laughs> was that was that my out loud voice? Yeah. Uh, so maybe we should wrap it up there before a grand jury convenes. But uh, yeah, it's it's a neat little mathematical phenomena, and uh, you know it shows up in a whole bunch of places like the lengths of rivers and things like that as well. And it's a, a cool little tool to play with it. So it's something worth checking out if uh, if this kind of math stuff floats your boat. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, thanks for bringing all these articles and projects this week, and uh, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Cheers. Up next, I talked to Deb Nicholson, Executive Director of the Python Software Foundation, about PyCon US 2023. Hi, Deb. Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you are 
the executive director for the Python Software Foundation. And through that, you do many things. What I thought we could talk about briefly is how'd you get involved with the conference and in the PSF? So the PSF like sort of came into being as there was like a need for an entity to run the conference. And once you get to a certain size, you don't want to be paying for hotels out of your personal checking account and stuff like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But the reason that I got here, I've been the executive director for almost a year, but I started in Python as a, a volunteer organizer for the Boston Python Meetup, which is where I live. And we were doing open hatch workshops for folks who were just learning Python for the first time. So we would do these like day and a half long events and then hopefully get people to kind of stick around and become part of the regular meetup group. Oh, that's awesome. Great. So you, yeah. you were really involved locally and kind of grew from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have been doing work in free and open source software for about 15 years. So I've been at a bunch of different organizations in our space, all the nonprofits, basically. Most recently, the Open Source Initiative, Software Freedom Conservancy. I help run a small conference in Seattle called the Seattle GNU Linux Fest. So I'm a founding member over there. So I've been doing like all the open source for a while. Yeah. But it's nice to be able to focus on Python because I feel like it's one of the it's just one of the best communities. Oh, yeah. I, we talk about it all the time on here. Um, it's very welcoming. Um, <laughs> I, I just returned from Pi Cascades and had a great time there. And again, just a really nice and fun, welcoming community. Yeah. What's your role with the conference this year? So as the executive director, I get to handle all of the weird stuff or out-of-band stuff or like when things go wrong or like when stuff blows up with one of the vendors or something like that. Or anything where it's like, ooh, it really feels like someone ought to do that. <laughs> Once we, as we get closer to the conference, there's a little few more of those tasks. <laughs> yeah. We're also, you know, we're convening a lot of different sprints and summits and conversations. And so kind of my primary role once we get on site is just to kind of talk to all the different parts of the community, see where people are coming from, like how the PSF could help them do what they're doing for Python even better, if there are resources or, or knowledge or introductions that we can make, and just always kind of looking on ways that we can support the community better and, and knit folks together a little bit more. Oh, that's awesome. So maybe we could dive into the conference. It's second year in Salt Lake City, and the venue's the same, the Salt mm -hmm. Palace Convention Center. Mm -hmm. What are the dates again this year? I'm going to be there for, for like 10 days, but most of you will probably <laughs> probably want to be there for uh, the 19th uh, through the 23rd. And then if you stay for sprints, you'll stay from the 24th to the 27th of April. Nice. And you are doing this as a hybrid conference again this year. Yeah, we are. So like we did two years of online before I got to the PSF and, and people really loved it. Uh, and it was, you know, of course, during that time when like no one was going anywhere. And then this like last year we did hybrid, but, you know, it felt a little like the kids table on the online part. So we're trying to put a lot more effort into convening conversations and making sure that folks have like some of the kind of hallway track experience in the online part. Yeah. And uh, so that's going to be running concurrent. Nice. And uh, as far as tickets, if people are still interested in, in getting involved with either the online part or uh, in person, uh, is that all still available? Yeah, we definitely have tickets. We had deals with like three hotels, but one is sold out. So now we just have deals with two hotels. So don't wait unless you really like taking a long walk every morning. <laughs> sure. We do definitely have tickets available and the online ticket is a lot cheaper. And if you write to us, like if you're a student or something, and uh, that is still a prohibitive cost, like we are, we're pretty easy with the online tickets. Cool. So I guess we could dive into it. One unique thing that, that PyCon U.S. has is tutorials, which are on Wednesday and Thursday. And those are somewhat separate from the conference. There's a separate fee to mm -hmm. join a tutorial. Am I getting all that right? Yeah, I would say they're still pretty, it's still pretty cost effective is the oh, word yeah. I guess I'm looking for. Yeah, to get that kind of an expert teaching you uh, in-person tutorial. Yeah, most of the tutorials, it's, uh, they're people that are part of the community. They 
like they do get a stipend, but most of them are doing it because they just have stuff that they want to share, like tech that they're really excited about, approaches to problem solving for different things that they do in Python that they, they're like, oh, I wish everyone knew this. And so, so they sign up to do tutorials. And, and if you come to PyCon, uh, then you get to come, if you come a couple of days early, you get to hear from them and learn from them. Yeah. Uh, one of our instructors, uh, and actually is going to be working with me at, at our booth this year, is uh, Gerana Hiela. He's doing a, a decorator's tutorial on, I think, Thursday. So I guess there's still time for that. Yeah. And there's another there's another one on Jupiter, which like there's always I feel like we always have a tutorial on the uh, like the data notebook stuff oh, yeah. because it's it's a huge part of what people use Python for. Yeah, totally. And then I've talked to Sean Tibor and Kelly Paredes. They do the Teaching Python podcast and and they're very much involved in the Education Summit, which I think is is that only Thursday or is it both days? I think the Education Summit's just one day. Okay. Who knows? Maybe one day they'll get big enough to ask us for two days, but we had to keep an eye on the capacity for that room because it's always very popular. Oh yeah, yeah. Lots of neat stuff going on. Yeah. And then there's a few sort of stuff happening around the language specifically that are kind of independent, but interesting to kind of watch the Python Language Summit sort of happens around the same time. Yeah, the Python Language Summit, that one is, I think, invite only, but there's a whole typing summit the next day. And, you know, people have a lot of opportunities to talk with the core developers, most of whom attend PyCon and are giving a talk on Saturday morning about, like, you know, what's going on with, like, all the different PEPs. And so it's a really great opportunity to, like, find out, like, what other people are thinking about in Python and what kinds of improvements are like kind of a hot topic in the community right now. And, you know, and maybe talking with folks that would have it, you know, it would affect their work in a similar way as it would affect your work. So you could kind of start to vision what you would like to see uh, be part of Python. Yeah, it's awesome. And then there's a sponsor presentation, I think that's Thursday, mm -hmm. and that's part would be part of your main ticket, right? Oh, yeah. The sponsor presentations are not extra. Those are part of your ticket. Great. Yeah. And you got quite a few keynotes, one almost at the top and end of each day, it seems like, mm -hmm. with a, a variety of people. One is our own Ned Batchelder from the Boston Python meetup. So oh, awesome. <laughs> that one I'm pretty familiar with. Carol Willing is also speaking, and she's like a longtime Pythonista. She's probably personally encouraged like 100 people to submit talks to PyCon. And we have James Powell. That one should be really exciting. I'm not sure he's come to PyCon before, but this should be really exciting. And then Margaret Mitchell, who's doing uh, research on natural language generation. So we, you know, we try to mix a little bit of folks like who often come and are leaders in the community, but people who are doing really exciting things with Python, like out in the world, but don't necessarily always have PyCon on their list. Yeah, cool. One thing that an area that I'm interested in, I haven't done a, a main conference talk myself, but I, I keep eyeballing the lightning talks and there's a couple different spots that those are happening this year again. Yeah. The great thing about lightning talks is that it's five minutes. So anything you could talk about for five minutes is welcome in there. And it's a great place to sort of start a conversation. Like if you had been, maybe you were thinking about proposing a talk next year, but you weren't sure if people wanted to hear about the thing you wanted to talk about. Like a lightning talk is a great way to sort of gauge interest in the topic and identify a couple of other people that want to talk about that with you. Yeah, I'm sure people will come up to you after your talk and say, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One really unique thing that I saw last year and I didn't quite understand was this uh, idea of posters. Mm -hmm. And I and I don't know if you could maybe explain that and what's going on with, with posters. Yeah. It's kind of borrowed from the academic world where okay. someone's doing like kind of research or something and and they want to show their work like in it's it's a like I said it's a slightly more academic format so you kind of put the stuff up on the poster like literally a physical poster and then you stand near it and people kind of like check it out and they ask you questions. I did one a couple years ago at PyCon Montreal on Media Goblin when I was working on that with my friend uh, Christine Lemmer Weber. And we're just like, here's the concept and here's this problem we've identified and here's what we're working on. But the poster sessions are really fascinating because it's like a slightly different kind of 
energy than a live talk. Like you can really go one-on-one with the person and talk about their research or their project with them. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then I think also happening Sunday is a job fair. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. How timely is that? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. There's the elephant. Yeah. So we are, we are hosting a number of folks that are, that have jobs and are hiring for Pythonistas. So if that's you, make sure you swing by on Sunday. Yeah, cool. There's a special project that, I was, again, I mentioned I was at Pi Cascades and Marietta was there uh, and she is this year's PyCon US chair. Yes. But she's also, you're celebrating an anniversary this year with PyCon US, right? We sure are. It's the 20th anniversary of PyCon. So I don't know. Sorry to everyone who now feels old because you came to the first one. <laughs> it's been 20 years. Right. I always feel like that every time they um, every time they share the war games or the hackers anniversary. I'm like, oh, geez, Just when did that happen? Stop. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's a good thing. So Mariana, and she's working with Georgie Care on this to collect like people's historical pictures, remembrances, uh, like any kind of like snippet or some like a story about how how your first PyCon went or how one of, you know, one that was really pivotal. Like if you have a story about like maybe you met your lifetime partner or got the job of your dreams at PyCon, we want to hear about it and uh, share that in the 20th anniversary celebration. So that'll be kind of put together in kind of a swanky little sizzle reel, I think, or something like that. So um, people can kind of just mainline the experience of PyCon in a couple of minutes. I'm going to include a link to it, but it will be the last day uh, of submission. I'm just noticing um, you got to get them in by March 31st, which is the day this this show will come out. So uh, make sure you, if you hear this and you're interested in submitting your story and you didn't catch it up, to, you know, you don't have much time to wait. Definitely uh, submit your story. I, yeah. Or if you write and say like, I have a story. Can I have one more day? I, <laughs> we'll see. I don't want to sign Rihanna and Georgia up to be like too lax, but like if it's a really good one, I bet they'll make it. <laughs> That's great. One thing that I've learned about uh, through having other guests on the show to talk about their conferences and talking to people who've gone to speak at other conferences is that if you're interested in you know speaking at PyCon, you have mm-hmm. some really amazing guidelines and resources there there's a whole if you want to propose a tutorial or you want to propose a talk but what you also get is a a 20 years if you will of resources like go much further it's kind of a, a neat resource i've definitely had people say you know definitely check out the the website if you're interested in doing a talk uh the pycon us resources are amazing yeah, we try to make it really low friction for newer speakers to apply. And there are a lot of community members that kind of put themselves out there as someone who's willing to help with your proposal. And you can join our Slack if you want to. The general Slack is also a place where you can find folks that want to help with proposals. And so, uh, yeah, that'll definitely all be in effect for our conference next year in Pittsburgh, too. We already have chosen speakers for this year. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, how how soon before the conference does the uh, call for proposals go? CFP? Yeah, it should be out like it, like you'll have several months, so it should probably be out like November December. Okay, so that's the common time. But we'll see. It's like uh, I think I think Pittsburgh is a couple weeks later in the year than Salt Lake. Just every venue is a little bit different. So basically, you should sign up for the PyCon newsletter so that you get notes about all the deadlines well in advance of them. Yeah, yeah. And what, one thing that I, I didn't know as much about, you know, I've heard of this from other conferences that that there often can be, you know, help with your talk and kind of getting going. But in some cases it, at PyCon, you can be assigned a, a mentor, somebody who's done a talk before. Yeah, yeah. we do that. And, um, you know, that is definitely something folks can do. I would also say too, like, most of our speakers are completely happy to talk with people about like, it, like especially if it's in your area of expertise, like about how they wrote their talk and how the you know what they think the program committee likes to see and yeah, <laughs> that's that's all good. Everyone's very friendly here. Everyone wants to help you succeed. Yeah, I had said uh, before we started that maybe you could 
choose a couple talks that you're interested in talking about. And then you're like, oh no, I, I don't want to have to do that. I have to pick from my favorite children. <laughs> uh, um, so maybe I'll do it for you. Um, yeah, because... I would love to hear what your favorite talks are. <laughs> I mean, I did already mention Ned. Um, and then uh, I did, like, we were talking about newcomers. I know there's going to be a great uh, tutorial for newcomers to Python uh, by Trey Hunter on Wednesday. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a handful of people that have been guests on the show that are doing conferences. So if you've heard their voices on here, Brett Cannon, uh, Calvin Hendricks Parker, Jody Birchall, Bruce Eckel, Pablo Galindo Salgado, and uh, Al Swigert, and you know, and a bunch of others. And then there's other people that I'm very interested in hearing from, Mark Shannon and Moshe Zatka. And yeah, tell me about that newcomer's orientation. You Is that kind of what you were mentioning there? Or is that something separate? Yeah, there is a newcomers. Well, so there's a newcomers tutorial for like learning Python. So oh, that's okay. like a four hour thing. And then on uh, like right before the uh, expo floor opens on Thursday night, there's like a newcomers orientation where you can meet with, I think it's Trey and Kojo or, and maybe a couple of our board members, Don and Deborah, are kind of like, hey, like let's all meet each other. Here's kind of how it goes. Now we're all friends, so you have at least one, uh, you know, a couple new friends here. You're not by yourself. And, like, kind of where everything is around the convention center. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And that's not, that's not extra. Yeah, it's a big place. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Salt Palace is huge. It's <laughs> yeah. next year's Pittsburgh event will be a little cozier. Okay. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but, but I did put some... Uh, a few uh, miles on my shoes last year, traveling to some <laughs> of the back areas to get to the conference talks. So, yeah, it's never a bad idea to bring your comfortable shoes to a conference. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. We've talked about quite a few of the events happening. I think one thing that we didn't mention is things that are happening. I guess it's on. Does it start on Monday? The mentored sprints for diverse beginners. Yeah, so that one, we're bringing that back after we didn't do it last year, but we're bringing it back. So I haven't actually attended those. But the idea is that if you haven't sprinted before, but you're interested in giving it a try, you come by and someone will help you get set up and find a project. Yeah, that's great. Sprints are, sprints are very relaxed. So the whole, the conference days are like, okay, we have a, like that ran over by three <laughs> minutes. I have 11 minutes to like get to the other end of the convention center. Right. But the sprints are like, hey, what's up? Like really <laughs> nice. mellow, like no, no clocks, no rules. I mean, there's still a code of conduct, but there's no rules about like what to sprint on or what, like how fast you're supposed to go or anything like that. Cool. And this year, again, there is a, I guess it's pronounced Charles track going again, right? Yeah, I've heard people say Charlaz. Charlaz, Yeah, okay. so that's the Spanish-speaking track. Like, all the sessions are given in Spanish. Um, and uh, it means that, like, so we're going to actually have, like, a mirror of that on the, the Hulu, which is the virtual instance where there will be a Spanish chat room for people to like oh, watch okay. the Charlotte's track and then like be able to chat about it in Spanish so that they kind of know where to go to find the other uh, remote Spanish uh, speaking participants. All right. So another expansion on the uh, online yeah. stuff this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're really excited about that because we're like, well, if we're going to have sessions in Spanish, we should be able to have some hallway track <laughs> in Spanish, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. And then one thing that we could mention is the there's a Pie Ladies auction that is kind of an annual event, right? Yeah, that one's a big one. It is Saturday night. Um, we are doing a slightly larger room than we did last year because we sold out last year. So I think the capacity is like 300. Okay. It's a classically kind of conference center banquet dinner. You're not really there for the food, but uh, you're there for the company and the auction. There's some amazing... Let's see, when our board chair last year got a gold chain keyboard necklace, which I don't know if that's sounding as cool now that I'm saying it as it looked in the pictures, but <laughs> yeah. that was a donation from Capital One and it was like, it was really amazing. And we raised a ton of money for Pie Ladies. Pie Ladies, like the you know, international network of Pie Ladies chapters is a fiscal sponsoree of the PSF. So we help them with their back office and their admin stuff. And we help them by like hosting this auction during PyCon. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
It's one of our like our accounting team, our accounting team's favorite events because they get to like bring in money in real time. So <laughs> that's great. Yeah, a, a couple other things to mention. We could talk a little bit about the COVID policies this year. They're, they're yep. basically similar to what was last year. Is that yeah? True? And um, and there's well, people have a lot of opinions about that, but. We pledged to have a masked event with a vaccine verification, and we also pledged that we wouldn't roll back our health policy. But we just felt like, regardless of what else is going on, like we're bringing an international audience, like people from like 50 different countries yeah. to one place in Utah. So it kind of doesn't matter if you could catch COVID at the Utah supermarket. Like that's not what we're doing. We're bringing an international group of people together. And then it's also really important for our attendees to know that like, here's what the health and safety policy is. We're not going to change it right after you buy your plane ticket. Yeah. And so that was also really important to uh, make sure that what we said we were going to do is what we kept. And so, and it also, I would see it makes the event accessible to people with Im- immune issues or people who share their house uh, with uh, folks that have immune issues. We're, uh, we're really into accessibility. We want everybody to be able to come to PyCon and have a good time and, uh, and not have to worry about stuff that we can take off their plate if we can. Yeah, that's great. That's most of the questions that I had. Am I missing anything that you wanted to speak about? Um, the only thing I think was like on the accessibility tech, we are also doing uh, capt- like live captioning for all the sessions again this year. Okay. So um, I think we've been doing that for a few years. So we have it for both the Charlotte's tracks and for the English tracks. All right. Yeah. Captioning for both. That's fantastic. Yeah. And then those all end up on the videos that are posted right. later. Yeah. 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 They do. And um, like last year, our English our English speaking captioners couldn't come in person. And so we were able to use the technique that we use for our Spanish speaking captioners who are remote to like get our English speaking stuff live remote captioned. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was, okay. <laughs> um, it was just like a, you know, like stuff changed about the travel rules. And anyway, it was like, okay, I guess, you know, but uh, they're going to join us in person this year. So that'd be nice. Great. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple weekly questions I like to ask. The first one is, what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python that can be a book package editor or a, other thing that's happening or an event? Obviously, PyCon is a big one there, but uh, yeah. <laughs> what else are you excited about right now? I don't know. I guess I'm I'm always thinking about like how this is the first year I've been the executive director. We're not quite at a year. And what's just been exciting to me is like hearing about all the things people do with Python. Like, so I live in Boston. Cambridge, technically, like near MIT, it's probably like every week I meet someone who's like, oh, I use Python. I'm using Python to help me cure cancer. And I'm like, that's awesome. And then I meet (laughs) someone who's like, oh, I'm using Python to like look at space and like see like galaxies like thousands of light years away from us. I'm like, that's also awesome. (laughs) And, you know, and like digital humanities, all these different things. And biology, everything. Everybody's using Python like in all these different ways. And so it's been really exciting because once you say what your job is, that you work at the Python Software Foundation, like everyone wants to tell you what they use Python for. <laughs> They're ready to share. <laughs> yeah. And so it's been a really great year of learning like a hundred new things that people do with Python. Yeah, that's great. And the next question is, this doesn't have to be about Python specifically. It's uh, what do you want to learn next? <sighs> what do I want to learn next? Oh, that's a really great question. I mean, it would be really handy to know a lot about how European policy gets made right now. Um, (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's an exciting, fun one to share. We're definitely looking at the Cyber Resilience Act that's being considered in the European Union and what that means for Python as an open source project that's uh, I don't consider us a commercial entity because we're a 501c3 charitable nonprofit, but that's a U.S. thing. And this is EU law. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, I I don't know if that's an, like a, so much excited as like it, it would sure be handy to know lots and lots about how European policy gets made. Yeah. Gosh, I, I wonder where you find resources for that that would be geared toward like languages oh, and things. Luckily, I've been hanging out with open source lawyers for like ah. over a decade, and so I have the right I have the right places to start. It's uh, it's just a little bit. It's a lot. Like I mean, yeah, you know. That's how, 
if it was really easy to affect policy, everybody would do it, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So what's the best way that people can follow what's going on with PyCon US 2023 if people want to pay attention? Mm-hmm. We're on Twitter. We're on Mastodon. Um, you can follow the PSF or you can follow PyCon US. And we also have a newsletter that we send out like it's kind of seasonally. It has a big, big, like, we don't talk to you for a while, like right after PyCon. And then we, once once we have dates and yeah. hotel blocks and CFPs and things, then we start talking to you again. All right. Well, Deb, thanks so much for coming on the show. And I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you there in Salt Lake City. Oh, yeah. Great. That'll be fantastic. And don't forget, Start sending relevant and timely product notifications for your web and mobile apps for free with Courier.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau and Deb Nicholson for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.